God's word. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Perez, the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges to them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers, and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Pray with me. Uh, Father, we, um, we ask for help now as we approach your word. It's a true word, and it's a good word, but, but at times it is difficult for us to, to wrestle with, so I pray that you help us to do that today, uh, and that you, Holy Spirit, would be pleased to, to make it clear to us, uh, and that you would also enable us to respond correctly to your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, <clears throat> what was the big news this week? Anybody? The big news this week, at least in my Facebook feed. Uh, was was that an NFL player apparently got upset about something last week? Um, but the other the other big news going around this week is that there is a cruise ship filled with cannibal rats floating around the Atlantic Ocean. All right, has anybody heard this? Okay, some of you are paying attention. So I'm not making this up. There's a, there's a cruise ship filled, they think, with with rats. Uh, floating around the Atlantic Ocean. Now, there are 90 people on this boat, okay? 
There's no people. But apparently what happened was, this is an old Russian cruise ship from like the 70s. Uh, whoever owned it couldn't pay their debts. Someone in Canada repossessed it in 2010. It sat in dock for a while, which is when they think a bunch of rats likely got hurt since it's a big empty boat. Uh, Canadians were going to sell it to somebody in the Dominican Republic for scrap metal, and so they were towing the cruise ship to the Dominican Republic when it broke loose. I'm not really sure how that happens, but it broke loose. They were worried about it hitting the Canadian drilling, oil drilling, deep sea oil drilling rigs, and so they lassoed the thing, and, they, they, and here's what you do with it. They towed it further out into the Atlantic and let it go. So, well, nobody's going to notice it here. Uh, we'll just, just leave this boat out here in the middle of the land and outside, out of mind, right? I like doing my problems. So, that, so they just leave the thing out there and like, well, that's the end of the matter. Well, apparently within the last year, this thing has traveled two-thirds of the way across the Atlantic. Uh, and some people are worried now that it's going to crash into the coast of Great Britain. Uh, this ship filled with cannibal rats. Uh, and the reason they're saying they're cannibal rats is there's no food on it and they're probably eating each other. So, imagine that you're one of the rats. Okay, and I know this is a stretch, but you just can't pass up this story if you're a preacher, right? You can't pass up a story like this. But imagine you're one of these rats and, and you know, you, you're thinking to yourself, I just was in Canada and it was cold and I just wanted to get to the Dominican Republic for some sunshine. And now here I am stuck in the Atlantic with all these other rats who are trying to eat me. How did I wind up in this situation? How did everything, I just, it was an easy plan. How did everything go so badly? Now, hopefully, uh, I'm going to trust that, that none of you ever find yourself in that exact situation. But, but <clears throat> there, there have been times, I'm sure, uh, in each of our lives where we wind up asking ourselves a question, how did I wind up here? How did I wind up in this situation in my life? Maybe you're, you're wrestling with that question right now even. How did I wind up in the mess that I'm in? Uh, maybe your family's falling apart. Maybe you're stuck wrestling with a sin that you never thought you were actually going to have to deal with. Uh, maybe you're on the edge of having an affair. Uh, maybe you're even close to doing something illegal because you're in such a, a desperate spot. And you're asking yourself, how did I get here? This is not where I intended to be. Uh, maybe it's something as seemingly benign as, you know, Christianity just doesn't seem very real to me right now. And I used to be so on fire for Jesus and the things of the Lord, and now it just seems so cold to me now. How did I wind up here? I've been in situations that, that felt like that before. And it's a, it's a miserable place to be, in, in part, um, when you realize, this is not always the case, but especially in those situations where you realize, this is kind of my own doing. It's not just that things went badly, as, as happens sometimes, and we wind up in difficult situations, but I'm talking about those situations where you look back and say, you know, I, I kind of got myself into this situation, and I never intended to be here. How did I how did I wind up here? In the book of Judges, the Israelites find themselves, I think, in a very similar situation. They've come to the land of Canaan, they've come to the land that, that God promised to give to Abraham, their forefather, and initially they enjoyed great success in taking the land. Everything was going well. They're driving out the inhabitants of the land. 
<clears throat> but then we read this. Look back in verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. You have to think there are a few of the Israelites at this point that are like, this is not the way this is supposed to work out. How did we wind up here? And so what I want to do this morning is, is for us to ask the question, how did the Israelites wind up in this situation? How did they wind up enslaved at times to the very enemies that the intention was for them to go and conquer these enemies? How did they wind up stuck in this cycle of sin and rebellion that's a downward cycle, as you'll see as we read the book of Judges? And I want to ask this question because there's a similar dynamic that can go on in our lives. Rebellion against God, disobedience to God that leads to a type of slavery, spiritual slavery, in our own lives. So, how do they wind up here? And what's the way out? Look in verse um, it's 7. There's two parts of this answer, but look first in verse 7 and verse 10. <clears throat> and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Now go down to verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. What the text is telling us is that while Joshua's generation was still alive, uh, and the elders had followed him, the people faithfully served God. But then in the second generation, the generation that followed them, they abandoned God. It tells us that they did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, when the text tells us that, that they did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel, I don't think that, that, that the author means, well, they just didn't know anything about God. They didn't know what had happened in the Exodus. They had never heard of these things. Now, they, they knew about these things. They had heard of these things. But the idea is that God was no longer a big deal to them. That these great events, these, these great deliverances, these miracles, were they're just kind of old news to them. And God was no longer relevant to their lives. Like, hey, this is great that you guys serve God, but it's just not where it's at anymore. It had no relevance for the here and now. And so they abandoned God. Uh, my dad had an uncle. I think he probably died uh, 15 or 20 years ago. He's one of these guys in the South that we refer to as a character. Uh, kind of an interesting fellow. But he was, he was known as a, as a yellow dog Democrat. Now, most of y'all are, are probably not old enough to know what, what a yellow dog uh, Democrat is. But they were called this because it was said if a yellow dog was running as the Democratic candidate and against a Republican candidate, that they would vote for the yellow dog before they would vote for the Republican. Right? That's how serious they were about their party. And, and I'm not old enough to know all the reasons behind that. I think it had to do with the Great Depression and they were mad at the way Hoover handled things and they liked what FDR had done and some of you guys can inform me later you know this, but they had a lot of loyalty because they felt FDR had really taken care of the poor people after the Great Depression, etc, etc anyway, they were, they were loyal and so they were never going to vote for a Democrat 
I mean, they were going to vote for Republican. They were always going to vote for a Democrat. My dad's generation, on the other hand, when I'm talking to my dad, he didn't feel this same loyalty uh, to the Democratic Party. Now, why? Because he didn't see what they had done way back then as relevant anymore. Like, that's great that you feel like they really helped you out and all, but I just don't see where they connect with my needs today. And so he didn't feel that same need to vote in the same way. That's kind of the dynamic that's going on here with the Israelites. Uh, the Israelites said, of the generation after Joshua said, well, that's great that you guys were loyal to Yahweh, and it's great that he helped you out back in the day and took care of you when you needed to take care of, but I just don't see how he's relevant to us in the here and now. I mean, it's, it, things have changed. There are other gods that we could worship uh, in, in this new land, and so he's just not relevant to our present lives. Now, one of the things that jumps out at you in this is this. How long did it take the Israelites to abandon God? Just one generation. Just from one generation. It wasn't like it was thousands of years. It was one generation, and they turned their back on God. For whatever reason, the faith of the fathers was not passed down to the children. Now, was that the father's generation because they weren't doing a good job? Was it the children's uh, fault because, because they were just being hard-hearted? You can't really tell from the text. Uh, and even today when we see that dynamic, when perhaps a child is not follow, following the faith of their parents, uh, you can't always draw this straight line and say, well, here's what went wrong. We don't always know what went wrong because children from the best families and children from the worst families are all desperately needing the grace of God uh, in order to experience a saving relationship with Him. And so the, while the Bible doesn't give us this formula, say, hey, do this and everything's going to work out all right, it also doesn't leave you just kind of going, well, who knows, let's just hope for the best and see what happens. I'll, I'll check on them in 20 years and see how that worked out. The, the, the Bible gives parents instructions in order to try to pass the faith of the parents on to the children. Turn back with me to, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Um, Deuteronomy gives some instruction to parents. It tells parents, on the one hand, if we have any expectation that our children are going to love God, we need to be those who love God ourselves. That we need to have God's commands on our hearts. Uh, our children can see through us. They can see through us when we say, yes, Christianity is really important to me. But when our lives show that other things are really what drive us and really uh, other things are the things that we serve, they can see through our hypocrisy. And so if we really want to pass our faith on to our children, our Lord, love for the Lord has got to be real and it's got to be vital. Uh, and that's, I think that's a huge danger in churches in the South. 
that we just kind of go because that's what you're supposed to do. And there's no real heart there for the Lord. And so one of the things, parents, if you're going to pass your faith to your children, you have to start by examining your own heart. Do I love the Lord? Do I have a genuine love for Jesus? Uh, a second thing this tells us, though, in, in verse 7, is as you shall teach them diligently to your children and talk to them when you sit and when you walk. This is not telling parents, all right, you need to sit down and you need to have four 30-minute lectures with your kids every day about uh, this, this, and this from the Bible. But what it's telling parents is, is that we need to be having regular conversations with our children where we're, where we're helping them connect the things in the Bible to the things in their lives. That this, this book uh, that we say we follow the teaching of, that we're showing them how this actually connects to everyday life. That as they walk and they sit and they go to school, this is not just something that they hear about on a Sunday in a youth group uh, and it's kind of compartmentalized. But it's something that has relevance for their everyday lives. And we're helping them to make those connections. Uh, one of the biggest things we have to do as, as parents is be having these difficult at times conversations with our children. I think our tendency is to say, all right, uh, ballet teacher teaches them ballet, and the baseball coach teaches them baseball, and the youth guy will teach them about Jesus. But God is, here is putting responsibility on parents, on parents. To help them connect this book to the world that they live in and the struggles that they face. Now, uh, there's a there's a third thing, this instruction of parents here. Skip down to verse 20, Deuteronomy 6. When your son asks you in, in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules of the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And what he's saying is, you need to point your kids, well, why don't we follow these rules, Daddy? Well, because God was gracious to us and he saved us from Egypt. And now we obey these things as a demonstration of our love and our devotion to the one who saved us and delivered us. Uh, as parents, we do the same thing. We point our children um, back to God's saving works in our own lives. You know, at age-appropriate times, parents, we have to be honest about who we are and, and honest about the sin and the struggles in our lives because what we're trying to do is we're not trying to teach our kids how to just to be these moral people. We have to, what we're trying to do is we're trying to point them to Jesus. And if we're kind of saying, on the one hand, you need Jesus, but on the other hand, we're acting like, well, I don't really need Jesus because I've never sinned and I've always got everything together, and I never repent to you, my child, when I've done something wrong. Then what we're teaching them, even though we may not be meaning to teach them that, is, hey, you just need to be moral. You just need to get your act together like daddy. And so we need to be honest with our children at appropriate times and appropriate ways about some of the things we struggle with. And we certainly need to be honest with them when we sin against them. And we need to repent to them, ask for their forgiveness. <laughs> Because again, what we're trying to show them is that they don't need to be good people. They don't need to be better people. They need to love Jesus. They need to put their faith in Jesus. They need Jesus like mommy and daddy need Jesus. Uh, and so we want our, our children to see that, that God is big and glorious uh, and, and that Jesus is someone that not just 
they need, but that we need as well. So, uh, the, the Israelites wind up where they are in part because for whatever reason, this hasn't happened. The faith of the fathers hasn't been passed down to the children. They didn't see its relevance. But there's a second thing involved here. Why don't you look at verse 11? The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods who were among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. See, it's not only that, that the Israelites said, well, God's kind of old school and he's not relevant for us anymore, but, but the Israelites saw something that seemed more relevant to them. Gods in the land of Canaan that seemed more relevant to their everyday lives. Now, why was that? Are they so attracted to these Canaanite gods? Uh, Baal was a god of fertility. Uh, Ashtoreth was his female companion. And the Canaanites believed that fertility came to your family and to your land, uh, to your livestock, when Baal and Ashtoreth were having relations, okay? That's the way they thought this worked. As long as Baal and Ashtoreth are, are happy, then everything around here is going to be fertile. But you didn't just sit around waiting, hoping that Bell and Mrs. Bell were going to get in the mood. You could actually get them in the mood. And so what they had was they had these temple prostitutes. And the Israelites could go and engage the temple prostitutes, and that was thought to, to stimulate the gods that they were worshiping. And then that would create fertility for everybody. More kids, more crops. You know, livestock were reproducing, all of that. So you can see, now that you know that, you can see why in verse 17 it says that the Israelites poured after other gods. That's really what they're doing. You can also see why the Israelites might find Baal worship more attractive, right? These are the local gods here. They're the ones that's gonna, that will bless us. And now their worship service looks a little more interesting. And, and so... So they were they were going astray from the God from the God of the Bible. Now, okay, we're not really tempted uh, in that way. Well, maybe maybe not. We still have hearts that that are prone to wonder after things that aren't God, things other than God. Uh, the Israelites were seduced by the gods of the land that they live in. And we're no different. The gods we're going to be most prone to run after are the gods of the land that we live in. And so we're not tempted by Bell and Astra or those kind of things. Uh, but there are still very much gods in our land of sex and money uh, and power, comfort, pleasure, uh, independence, freedom that, that nobody tells me what to do. I, I'm just going to do what I want to do. These idols can, can often be the functional rulers of our heart. And the danger for Christians often is not that we're just going to abandon God and be atheists. But the danger is that we think we can serve the true God of the Bible, one of these gods at the same time. And I can, I can kind of run after both of these and get blessings from both of these gods. Even though Jesus is the one that tells us uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't serve both God and money. It's going to be one or the other. 
Well, the Israelites abandoned God. They ran after other gods. And then what happened? Verse 14 tells us that they were actually sold into the hands of their enemies. Now here's the principle. Whatever you worship, whatever you worship, that's what you'll serve. And if you worship anything other than the true God of the Bible, that's going to lead you into slavery. And so the Israelites were actually led back at times in the book of Judges into slavery. Uh, a friend of mine, I, was, I have a, <clears throat> a hole in my television watching time right now. I was looking for something new to watch. So a friend of mine suggested that I start watching The Wire, which I tried before and kind of gave up on. And so I, I decided to start watching it again. And it's a television show about a, a very gritty, real uh, television show about drug dealers who operate in the housing projects of, of Baltimore. Of the right screen, we're not read this right now. Um, not suggesting that you watch it. But in, the, but in the first episode, there are these two guys... They are so strung out and so desperate for a hit that they go to the local drug dealers and, and you know, you got to give these guys cash, not taking credit cards. And so they, they don't have enough money. And so what they do is they decide to make some counterfeit money. But this is not a high-tech operation, okay? This is like me taking a dollar bill and putting it on my copier at home. And then whatever comes out, I cut out that dollar bill. And I just try to slide that in with a stack of green and hope that they don't notice. Well, they notice, okay? The first time they get away with it, the second time they get caught. And they, they run this guy down who's tried to do this. And they just, just beat him almost to, to death. And he winds up in, in the hospital. And I was watching that. And I was thinking, you know... I don't really want my kids watching this show, but I would kind of like to to pull them in here and make them watch this incident. Because not only is this, not only was that a picture of what happens when you do drugs, but it's a a picture of public service announcement. It's, it's, It's also a picture of what happens when you mess around with sin. It's not just a picture of the way that drugs enslave you. It's a picture of the way that any sin enslaves us. It's a picture of what greed will do to you. It's a picture of what lust will do to you. See, they took the drugs. It provides a momentary pleasure, a momentary escape from the world that they live in. But then what happens? You need a bigger hit. And what happens? You take more, but you don't get as much of a kick. And so you got to run back again for more. And you just get more and more caught up into the cycle and more and more desperate and more and more enslaved. And the very thing that you thought you were going to use for your purposes is actually using you for its purposes. And the very thing that you thought was going to give you life is actually turning out to be death for you. Some of you have given yourself to pornography. And you know exactly what this feels like. To have given yourself to something that you thought was going to bring you so much pleasure, but now there doesn't seem to be any way to unentangle yourself from it. Some of you so uh, desperately want to be involved in a relationship with somebody that you continue to cross lines physically that you said you weren't going to, and you make all these rules, but the rules never seem to do any good. And so you're completely entangled and enslaved to your desires. Uh, others of us are slaves to approval. 
And so we're always constantly worried about and thinking about what are they going to think about this? And so we're constantly trying to please people. Others of us are slaves to work. Works become an idol to us. Uh, schools become an idol to us. It may be because of the money it brings. It may be because of the status it brings. Uh, it may be because it helps you to feel important and useful and valuable. It, it may be because of the challenge. It may be that you work so long because you know that there's more work for you at home. That going home and being a parent is actually harder than staying in the office a couple hours. And so you're, it's kind of a, a comfort is the, the operative God in that situation. See, it's, in, it's incredibly easy to, to give ourselves over to things other than God because of the benefits that they promise us because God doesn't seem relevant to our lives, but we give ourselves to these things and they enslave us. Uh, so, what, <clears throat> so what's the way out? It seems like a very hopeful chapter. What's the way out? At the end of the day, there wasn't really a way out. Um, don't make keep going. At, 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 the, at the end of the day, there wasn't really a way out. There wasn't anything the Israelites could do to fix this other than simply to groan and to cry out to God. They couldn't fix the situation. They couldn't unentangle themselves. But God could. God could. And so Judges is the story of a God who refuses to give up on his people. He refuses to give up on his people who continually go astray from him. And so he sends them, even though he allows their enemies to oppress them, they cry out and he sends these military deliverers. And this is really what a judge is. A judge in this book is not like a judge like we think of today. But think of more like Denzel Washington in the book of Eli or uh, think of Rooster Cogburn. Okay, kind of these, kind of these flawed, uh, tough guys and, and tough lady in one case who, who ride in to save the day, but, but they're far from perfect people. But God, these are the people God raises up to save his people. And even then, he does this, and all three judges, they just kind of like, oh, okay, that's great, and everything's good for a while, and they go back the same sin, the same idolatry again. And God is jealous for his people. He, he's jealous in a good way, the same way that, that a husband is jealous for the affections of his wife. And he's not going to let them live in this idolatry. And so he afflicts them again. And so even this discipline, though it's painful, is a kindness from God meant to call them, meant to teach them to cry out to him again. But the cycle continues over and over and over. And as we saw last week, part of the design of Judges is it's meant to cause us to want a better deliverer, a better savior. Somebody who can save us not just from our military enemies, but somebody who can actually save us from ourselves and our own addictions. And so the book of Judges really, especially chapter 2, I think points us in two directions. On the one hand, it shows us how, how did the Israelites get into this mind? Well, they forgot God's saving works in the past. They forgot the Exodus. They forgot all these things. And so they abandoned God for other gods. But it also points us forward to God's saving work in the New Testament. 
See, what the, what the Israelites needed to remember at the end of the day was what God had done for them because He loved them. God had, had saved them and God continued to pursue them and even to discipline them because He loved them and He was jealous for them to be His bride, His people. And what we need to see and I think the only thing that will really free us from our infatuation with the idols that we all run to, what we need to see is how much God loves us and yearns for us and is jealous for us. The New Testament tells us in Romans chapter 5, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The movie uh, Blood Diamond. Has anybody seen this movie Blood Diamond? A few people. Uh, The movie Blood Diamond is about slavery, but it's also about how love can actually free us from slavery. Uh, Blood Diamond tells the story of the Civil War that was raging in Sierra Leone uh, during, I think it's the late 1990s. It's a fictional story, but it's in a historical setting. Uh, the, the country was ravaged by civil war, in large part because a lot of diamonds had been discovered there. Um, and so there were diamond merchants from around the world, international diamond merchants, who would do anything they could to get those diamonds, because those things are kind of valuable out here. So, so they do anything they can to get these diamonds, even if it means fueling the civil war that's going on in that country, because they're, they're idle, what they're enslaved to as well. Well, within the country, there are two factions. There's the government factions, and then there's the resistance, who are really bad deeds. The, the rebels are called the Revolutionary United Front. And short for that is RUF. Which I just, it was kind of fun watching the whole movie where they're constantly talking about how bad RUF is. Um, but, but RUF, in, in this movie, uh, they, they would attack whole villages, just ride up on you randomly and start killing everybody. The people they didn't kill, there were men who were healthy enough. Uh, they would take these men and they would enslave them and they would make them work in the diamond mines. The young boys, say, 6 to 11 years old in there, they would take them, and they wouldn't kill them, but they would enslave them in a different way. They would, they would basically brainwash them. Um, they would tell them how evil their parents were and how evil the government was. Uh, they, would, they would blindfold them and make them just start firing a machine gun. And what they had done was they had marked somebody up to be killed while they weren't looking. And so they slowly get them used to just killing people, and they drugged them, and it's just... It's just horrendous. Um, but early in the movie, there's a man named Solomon Benday. Solomon Benday. And he's enslaved and he's taken to the diamond mines. He finds his big diamonds, kind of like drop, drives a fly. But his son is also taken and he's enslaved and he's turned into one of these soldiers, one of these child soldiers who's going training around killing everybody. And the movie really revolves around the quest for the diamond and Solomon Bende's quest for his son. Um, I'll leave out a lot. He finds his son, finally finds his son, but his son don't have anything to do with him. Because he's been trained that his dad's the bad guy. 
And so a few things happen. It looks like the sun's going to come around, but then things get bad again. And so you wind up with this scene where the son is standing and he's got a gun and he's pointing it straight at his dad. The dad who has gone through all of this to find his son. He's sacrificed everything. He's, he's laid everything on the line to find his son and to bring him home again. And now he's sitting here staring at him and the son is simply pointing a gun at his father. And this is what the dad, Solomon, says to his son. His son's name is Dia. Dia, what are you doing? Dia, look at me. Look at me. What are you doing? You are Dia Vende of the proud Mende tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister and the new baby. The cows wait for you, and Babu, the wild dog, who minds no one but you. I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you, and you will come home with me and be my son again. And as tears stream down both of their eyes, the son slowly lowers the gun, and the father and son... Embrace. See, the, the son was freed by this slavery, which was not his own making, but he was freed from his slavery when he finally saw the love of his father. Y'all, in the, in the cross, God comes to us and he says, I know you've done bad things that were of your own doing, that you did because you wanted to do, and you were enslaved by them and you kept running back to you, but these things that enslave you, these idols that you worship, don't you understand that they don't love you? Sex and money and power and greed, they don't love you. They don't have your best interest at heart. They want to keep you enslaved, but that's not who you're made to be. You're not meant to be a slave. You're meant to be free. And God says to us, I'm your father who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again. Y'all, when we're enslaved to idols, it's like when we find ourselves in this situation where God's standing right here and the idol's standing right here and we keep getting pulled over to the idol and God is calling us to come back to Him and it's like we've got a gun pointed at Him. I don't quit telling me that. I don't want anything to do with you. I want to run to my idol. I want to serve my idol. And the only way that we'll ever put that gun down and come to our Father is if we see how much He loves us. We see that in the cross. We hear Him saying to us, I am your Father who loves you and He will come home with me and be my Son again. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to see your relentless pursuit of us? That you have loved us to come after us, even though we prefer idols. Uh, you have sent not just a slew of military leaders, but you sent your son to die so that you could bring us home. Would you help us to see that? And would you help us to come running to you? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.